This is the Low Level Hall Podcast, episode 16. Dog stick, 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 dog Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're having a great day, a nice spring day wherever you're at. Uh, it's been pretty nice here. I've been trying to get a lot of work done. I'm I'm actually pretty exhausted because I've been working so much in the uh, yard and in the house. I was crawling under the porch today and uh, digging a trench out to my shed. So doing a doing a lot of stuff trying to trying to beat the heat. A little bit of delay since our last episode. I uh, wanted to get this one out last week, but kind of real life got in the way and uh, wasn't able to record this part. But we've had the interview done for quite a while, so we're kind of stitching it all together and uh yeah i appreciate everyone's support and, and and patience as we get these things out you know the goal is to get two episodes out a month uh we've pretty much stuck to that goal uh last month i think we had we had three episodes last month but uh you know still sticking to the, the two a month uh, is definitely the goal so we're we're on track for that i'm very excited to have our guest on uh of course uh author of the book low level hell which is a huge inspiration to to me and my career and uh, of course to this podcast so we're just going to roll right into it and i'll talk to you guys on the other side all right everybody hugh mills is a retired lieutenant colonel from the united states army he flew oh6s cobras hueys c12s oh58s a few other aircraft uh, and he is the author of the book, Low Level Hell. Sir, welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. It is a pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I do want to say before we even get started, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of your book. I read it when I was a very new scout pilot myself, a uh, very formative book. And uh, I haven't read it in a while. I need to read it again. I meant to before we got a chance to talk and just life kind of got in the way. But uh, there's certainly enough stories in there that I can remember from from all these years and uh, it, it's just great to have you on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and, and how you got in the Army. Um, born in Memphis, Tennessee. My, my dad was a school principal. Uh, my grandmother lived in Memphis, uh, was a school teacher. So I was actually born there, uh, but raised initially uh, 48 to 59 in Monticello, Arkansas, where my dad was a principal and a superintendent of schools. And then in 59, we moved to Hot Springs, which is what I consider home. Um, sixth grade through high school in Hot Springs, class of 1966. Uh, notable classmate, uh, William Jefferson Clinton, class of 64. Uh, Bill Clinton was my next door neighbor growing up. Uh, I know him well. And uh, I'm the best looking. He's the most important to come out of uh, Hot Springs High School. <laughs> That's wild. Do you, you ever talk to him still? or I, I have not spoken to the president since uh, he was last here at uh, the Truman Library. But uh, when, he, when he comes to town, I do have an opportunity uh, to get with him. 
actually, my wife spoke to him last. Uh, since I have, I was off doing something else. But um, I grew up in Hot Springs, um, spent a semester in uh, Arkansas Tech, Arkansas Polytech College at Russellville. Um, uh, abysmal failure. Um, my, my best classes were ROTC and Sport Parachute Club. Which, which kind of told me uh, the answer to uh, the, the abiding question of what it is you ought to be doing, and, and school was not it. Uh, so I enlisted in, in February, February 1st of 67 uh, in the Army as an airborne infantryman. Uh, got all the way through training, and then en route to your alma mater, the 82nd Airborne, I had an opportunity. I was selected for officer candidate school. And so I was diverted very much against my will away from infantry. And uh, I headed to uh, armor OCS. We didn't have a choice in those days. They sent you where they needed you. So off to Fort Knox, uh, I was there for, for six months, uh, graduated as a second lieutenant of armor and cavalry. Uh, while I was in my last few weeks of uh, OCS, I went down to uh, uh, the airfield. Uh, there was a there was a move on to recruit aviators, and I went down to the airfield uh, to take an obligatory flight in an Army aircraft. And when I got down there, uh, the the airplane I'd never seen uh, a helicopter up close before, but it was a brand new OH six. This is uh, uh, this is 1967, uh, December or so, and uh, it was a brand new stateside marked OH-6, and two of us uh, OC candidates took a ride in that thing from Knox to Lexington Bluegrass Army Depot and back. I flew in the back seat on the way uh, there, and on the way back, I got to fly in the front seat and and manipulate the controls a little bit. And I think the standard was if it didn't scare you to death and you didn't puke, you passed the orientation flight because I, <laughs> I was selected for uh, rotary wing flight training as a RLO, a real live officer in uh, uh, April of uh, 1968, Fort Walters for basic uh, to Fort Rucker for advanced. I flew... Uh, you'll remember these, Brian. I flew A model and B model Hueys in the initial phase. Uh, our, our load tester was it was a 55-gallon drum of water in the back, which is about all that an A model would lift. Um, and then for the final phase, we flew D model Hueys, the, the uh, L11 engine. Um, and then off uh, 30-day vacation and off uh, to Vietnam, where I was assigned, uh, much much to my chagrin, uh, to the First Infantry Division. I didn't want to go there. Um, we we cruised into the 90th Replacement Battalion in Saigon, and um, uh, there were about 15 or so aviators from my class that were there at the 90th Replacement, and. I wanted to go to the 11th Armored Cav Regiment. That's I was a cavalryman. That's what I wanted to do. And off went several of my friends to the 11th ACR. I said, well, if I can't be in the ACR, I'll, I'll go to first of the ninth with the first cav. 
Uh, several went off to that. And, and much, much to my disappointment, about three days into my uh, stay there at the 90th replacement, I was assigned to the 1st Infantry Division. So, I mean, it sounds like your career is, so far has just been a lot of what you don't want to do. Like you enlisted, and it sounds like that was the last choice you had. Well, the, the enlistment was something I did want to do. Um, I, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, guys were getting drafted for the Vietnam War. Uh, it didn't occur to me, frankly, at the age of, of uh, 18, that if you enlisted, you might very well wind up in Vietnam. In fact, if you enlisted as an airborne infantryman, you were going to Vietnam. Uh, the 3rd Brigade, 82nd mm-hmm. Airborne, was in Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was, a, uh, it was a series of things I didn't want to do, which all turned out in my favor. Uh, every single mm-hmm. result I'm absolutely happy with. Um, so my assignment to the 1st Infantry Division was fortuitous in that the aviation assets of the division were all controlled by the 1st Aviation Battalion. And in that battalion, A Company was a lift company, B Company was a gun company slash uh, administrative OH-6 company. Uh, 173rd uh, Aviation Company, the Robin Hoods, was attached. And the Air Cav Troop for the Quarter Cav, the Divisional Armored Cavalry Squadron, was was detached from the squadron and attached to uh, the 1st Aviation Battalion. So when I I got over to the 1st Av Battalion, S1, I was with a lieutenant named John Fields, who was in my uh, flight school class. John was an infantryman. And uh, the battalion S1 said, Fields, you're going to A Company 1st Ave Battalion because you're an infantry officer. And Mills, you're going to the quarter cav uh, because you're an armor officer. And and that started my uh, affiliation with the quarter cav and the air cavalry, uh, which lasted my whole career. And I couldn't be more pleased about that. So, so back then, uh, to put some context, aviation was not a branch, uh, but was more, I don't want to say an additional duty, but it was, it was sort of a specialty skill that different branches would feed people into like infantry and armor and things like that. So you were still an armor officer, just, uh, you were aviation trained, right? Correct. The, the, uh, the branch, I, I, what's our branch birthday, uh, April 13th, 83, I believe is the, is the birth of aviation branch. So. For those of us that were flight school graduates, you know, it was different for a warrant officer candidate and for a uh, uh, an RLO or a real live officer going to flight school. I lived off post. I commuted to Fort Walters. Uh, at the end of the day, I went home. On the weekends, I was off. Warrant officer candidates had to um, endure the TAC officers and the barracks and all that warrant officer stuff uh, in, in addition to learning to fly. For those of us who were commissioned officers, our primary branch was our commissioning branch. Uh, aviation was an additional specialty. And so for all of my career, um, I would serve uh, uh, tours on the ground. I commanded a tank company, an armored cavalry troop, um, um, an air cav troop, an attack helicopter company. 
so I'd go back and forth between uh, ground assignments and air assignments, and I, I truly enjoyed that. I enjoyed the ground. Um, my tank company in Germany is especially a fond time for me. My CAV troop, um, armored CAV at Fort uh, Hood, was a, was a great time. Um, but armor officers largely filled the air cavalry um, seats uh, back in those days. Infantry guys went to the assault helicopter companies. Um, transportation guys, uh, you know, flew Chinooks. Uh, artillery guys, uh, a lot of them were in the artillery units as aviation spotters. But it, it, we were dual rated both on the ground and in the air. And the, the thing that I've always thought that we lost by going away from that is when I was flying over an armored cavalry commander in Vietnam or Germany or wherever, I understood his view from the tank turret as well as my view from the aircraft. So, you know, some guys, and I've, I've actually heard uh, non-branch qualified people um, try to get an infantry unit to cross 15 kilometers in the same time that they could do it in a helicopter. And it doesn't quite work that way. So having a branch yeah. qualified officer in the air always made great sense to me. But as we became more technologically advanced, that uh, went by the wayside. Sure. Cause it's a lot harder harder, maybe not the right word, but there, there's a lot more complexity to learning a modern aircraft as there was compared to to back in those days. So you've got to really devote the time to it. Because I mean, yeah, a commission officers going through flight school. I mean, there's guys that are down there for year and a half, two years, you know, before they get out to a unit because the, the aircraft qualification takes so long and just flight school takes so long. Um, but yeah, having been a former armor officer before I went aviation, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. There's a there's some context that you understand when you've come from that world and, and, uh, understanding just like you said, speed and distance have different meanings between a helicopter and a tank, just the way they did. Uh, I'm sure you realized it too. You know, when you went through your initial training, you were essentially an infantryman and then you got on tanks at Fort Knox and understood, Oh, 20 kilometers isn't that bad anymore. Like it would have been if you were an infantry guy. You, you bet. 20 K is a long way to walk. It's not bad in a tank. It's a nothing in a yeah. helicopter. Um, right, yeah. I also have always thought that we were probably smarter than you guys are today because, you know, my attack company in Germany in 1978 was bigger than a squadron today. I had 38 aircraft in a, in a company. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as a major, I commanded more aircraft and warrant officers, 55 warrants, 130 enlisted, uh, 47 wheel vehicles, um, which would make a hell of a squadron these days. But yeah. uh, things change. Uh, uh, the death of the air cavalry troop shall abide with me to the grave. That, that hurt me to the core. Um it's uh, it's a new time, and, and uh, I got to roll with it, but uh, I sure hate to see the changes we've made in terms of the flexibility of the aircraft troop in Vietnam, which we can talk about, is, is legendary, formidable, and we've lost all that. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about that now since it's up, um, because I agree with you. Um, there's it's funny you look back at that time period and even some things from the armor side in the eighties 
um, you know, you had these sort of mixed units where they had all kinds of stuff stuck together. And like you said, larger units, I know scout platoons back in the eighties, uh, underground scout platoons were huge. They had hell, they had motorcycles and, you know, Jeeps and Humvees and all kinds of stuff mixed in. Whereas now the, the, uh, the idea is really just have homogenous units of, okay, these are all tanks. These are all Bradley's. These are all whatever's. Um, you know, my own experience in Afghanistan, it's funny reading your book and, and other, uh, you know, documents from that time period, we could have totally used that sort of capability. You know, you talk about the, the blue platoon, uh, the, the infantry guys riding along, uh, with the lift guys and being able to sort of action things that, that are found by the scouts. I mean, there's so many times where we just found things that they're suspicious and you'd like to check them out, but there's, there's no way you're going to get somebody to drive out to, to take a look at it. And, and you're probably not going to land and yeah. look at it, but it'd be really great to have a squad of infantry guys that you could call out and have them take a look at it and fly in on a Blackhawk or something. Uh, so, I mean, talk a little bit about that from, from the Vietnam perspective. How did that stuff work out? Well, the, the, the first infantry division was the first main force maneuver division to go to Vietnam. Second brigade uh, deployed to Vietnam in, in uh, I believe July of, 65, um, they took with them the Divisional Armored Cavalry Squadron, which had three troops, A, B, and C, uh, were armor troops with the M48 tanks and A calves, uh, the up armored uh, uh, M113s. Uh, and the air cav troop deployed at that time only had B model Hueys. Uh, there, were, there were two platoons uh, that deployed. Um, the B model platoon of lift were called the rodeo clowns and the uh, gunship B models were called the Mustangs. Hmm. And they discovered very quickly that the dimension that was missing was the, was the reconnaissance capability up close. Hmm. And so across Vietnam, the air cavalry troops reorganized by adding a, um, a scout element and those were pulled from OH-13 elements around artillery units and brigade aviation sections and so on. And it's, it's always been funny to me that the origin of the name Outcasts, uh, the scout platoon of the quarter calf, came when a bunch of these guys who didn't deploy over with the troop were sitting around the, the hooch one night drinking beer, and, and they said, we're nothing but a bunch of flipping uh, that wasn't the word, but I'm being cordial. <laughs> we're, we're a bunch of flipping outcasts. And that's where the name came from. Mm. Uh, a Lieutenant Solderberg um, uh, leapt upon that. And that became the name of the, of the scout platoon. Over time, the term rodeo clown was dropped from the lift section, and they simply became the clowns. And uh, and the Mustangs were all the way through the war, uh, the Mustangs. Mm. Shortly after uh, the, the addition of scouts, uh, they also added to the Air Cavalry Troop a detachment of uh, LERPs, Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol. Mm. Uh, and their call sign was Doughboy. <laughs> um, when the scouts would find something that needed to be looked at to your to your comment, uh, the doughboys would be dropped in uh, to do the ground reconnaissance to develop the situation. 
and as necessary to bring on bigger and, and stronger assets of the division to pile on uh, if, if a situation was developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in about 1968, um, the uh, long-range reconnaissance guys separated from the squadron and became an independent LERP company, the 52nd Infantry uh, LERP, uh, mm-hmm. F Company, I believe it was. And then shortly after 1 January 69, they wrote, they, they actually rebadged as uh, India Company uh, 75th Ranger Regiment and became a pure uh, long-range reconnaissance uh, company within, or a detachment, if you will, within the 1st Infantry Division. At that point in time, the, the Doughboys became the ARPS, the Aerial Rifle Platoon, uh, 28 guys commanded by a, a lieutenant uh, who were part of the troop. They lived with the troop. Um, they, they rode into battle with the clowns. Um, and when the scouts found something that needed to be developed, we could drop 28 guys on top of that. They were all seasoned uh, infantrymen, paratroopers, rangers that came from the various units within the division because it was a plum assignment. You got to sleep at home at night. You got clean sheets. <laughs> um, the, the negative side is they got thrust into some things that were uh, arguably more than they could chew. Um, but that's how the troop actually uh, evolved over the years. So by the time I got there on the 1st of January, 69, B models uh, had been replaced by Cobras. Uh, 10 Cobras in the gun platoon. The uh, D models had been replaced by H models in the lift platoon, uh, 10 of those. And the OH-6 had replaced the OH-13, and there were 10 of those. So 30 30 aircraft in the aircraft troop, plus a platoon of riflemen uh, who give you the added dimension. The thing that I liked the most about them was um, if we lost an aircraft, uh, we could dump those guys right on top of the downed crew instantly. Uh, we didn't respond on those necessarily from base. We would rotate forward um, on a mission, and they would uh, they'd sit strip alert at Quan Loy, Lock Nin, Lyke, wherever it was, and um, they would scramble those guys if we lost a scout. And and on average, if if we lost a bird, we could be on them within minutes. Mm. That dimension has been lost by Army aviation. And uh, in terms of instant CSAR, uh, combat search and rescue, I, I think we need that back. Yeah. And I think that's a concept that we need to relearn. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So so basically what you're saying is you guys took off going on a mission and you would bring your own package of CSAR with you and then just stage it close by and then they can react. Yeah, that's that's certainly nothing that we have had recently in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, at least never than I, when I've been there. There were two types of scout alerts. Um, there were, there was a, at least two teams that went out every day that were VR teams, visual recon, mm. one Cobra, one scout. There were two scramble teams that remained on strip alert at Fuloy, our base camp. And if VR one uh, ran out of things to do. Uh, VR2 perhaps would relieve them. If VR2 developed a target, they would scramble 
the the two scramble teams that were on strip alert and usually moved the ARPs closer at that point in time. The, the beauty of Vietnam is that the the lines were all interior. They were not exterior. Mm-hmm. We didn't have forward lines. We operated from base areas that were secure. And so we could move to a base area and go on strip alert uh, and be available to roll those helicopters out with gun support, scout support. We could, uh, we, we could uh, recon the LZ long before um, they got there. We could pick the LZ for them. It was all instant. There, there, very little of that was pre-planned other than the VR team missions. Um, the other thing that's probably different than you guys did, we were tasked to the division G2. We didn't work for G3 and we didn't work for the squadron. We were tasked by the G2 uh, for the area missions that we would perform. And then that's where our back briefings went to at the uh, conclusion of operations. Yeah, that's very different. Um <laughs> No, I mean, just in general, everything you're describing is very different than current operations. And I don't, I don't know why, because everything you're saying to me makes sense. <laughs> um, and, and having talked to other people who are in Vietnam, you know, the, the current operating environment of Afghanistan, Iraq is really doesn't seem that different. Um, certainly some different levels of threat and, and different considerations, but generally speaking, um, they're, they're similar enough that I, I do kind of wonder like, well, why didn't we have uh, this sort of thought process? I mean, because it makes it sound like what you're saying is this was par for the course. This wasn't uh, a deliberate like, OK, we're going to go do this mission. We better coordinate with the uh, lift guys and the, the infantry guys. This was the package and this is how it was basically always run. Right. Correct. Every day was the same. Um hmm. The, the troop was tasked to the G2, and the entire asset of the troop was focused on first those VR teams and, and secondarily the scramble teams. The scramble teams could also rotate out and, uh, and respond to other divisional assets. Mm. Uh, routinely, the LERPs would get in trouble, uh, and we would dump the... Uh, uh, we, we would dump the ARPs on top of, a, of an LZ to rescue a LERP team that was in trouble. Hmm. Um, downed aircraft, uh, both uh, South Vietnamese, Allied Force, uh, Air Force, uh, Navy uh, would occasionally lose aircraft, and we'd um, slip in there and, and rescue the guys. Um, it really was a, it was a homogenous unit that had tremendous uh, flexibility, a major Commanding uh, a unit like that in Vietnam had a heck of a lot of firepower. Ten Cobras, yeah, um, ten Hueys, ten OH6s, and a platoon of infantry that belonged to him. So it was a tremendous organization, and uh, uh, I, I think we've lost something when we lost that. Yeah, and to put that into context for listeners who, who just don't understand what what we're talking about difference-wise, you know, when I was an Air Cav troop commander as a captain, I had ten OH58 Deltas, and that was it. And you're talking about one rank higher had a same organization, however, had 30 aircraft plus infantry. So, yeah, that's a that's a huge difference. Yeah. And and later on, later on in the in the uh, European theater, Hmm. we had 38 aircraft, scouts, Cobras and Hueys in an attack company, also commanded by a major. So. The, the force structure, uh, in, in order, I think, to fill out the combat brigades, 
um, shrunk a little bit and, and the horsepower to control them increased. Um, yeah. So it, it's totally different than when I was in. Yeah, very different. Uh, let's get back to you. So you finished flight school. You showed up in Vietnam and you said 69? Yeah, 1 January, 69, New Year's Day. That's when I landed in Vietnam. Okay. And so tell us about that experience getting to your unit. Well, the, the bad experience about getting to my unit, the, the, the absolutely mortifying experience is, is uh, I was a cavalry officer and, and by God, they were sending me to an infantry unit. And I just thought that was awful. <laughs> um, I had been sheep dipped uh, to, to a great degree at Fort Knox that I had given up my infantry ways and seen the error thereof. Um, but I, I was assigned to an infantry division, not realizing at the time that it was the oldest division in the United States Army. I mean, 1917, um, the basis of the American Expeditionary Force to France. I didn't realize all that. And, and frankly, the thing that hacked me off the most is when they came to get me, to take me to, from Saigon to, to Zeon, they, they sent a, a dump truck. And it was a dump truck, the back end full of dirty clothes. And the, <laughs> uh, the charger quarters came into the little hooch I, I was in and said, Lieutenant Mills, your ride's here. And John Field and I walked out there and here's a dump truck full of dirty clothes. And we rode from the 90th replacement to Zeon in the back end of a dump truck with a spec four uh, with an M16 gardener. And I was, I was not thrilled about my induction into the infantry. Uh, everything else though turned out extremely well so so when you show up to your unit i mean what did you just start flying immediately like how does that how do they integrate you into the program when i arrived at the troop i i spoke with the troop commander who was major willie cummings uh also of memphis tennessee i thought that was pretty cool um Hmm. African-American major, longtime aviator, and, and uh, he was looking at my records and he said, uh, uh, okay, you're not a Cobra pilot, you're a Huey pilot. Um, and I said, yes, sir, I'm, I'm rated in the, in the uh, D model, uh, but I sure would like to be a scout pilot. That's what I want to do. And he said, well, the, we've already got a scout platoon leader and um, I'll take that under advisement, but you're going to go to the clowns and um, you'll be a section leader uh, in, in that organization. So I started off January and February flying Hueys. And when I arrived there, I had 210 hours of rotary wing flight, which was my total uh, repertoire at that time. And um, the, um, the introduction basically required an in-country check ride, which, which I had to take. I had not flown for 30 days. Um, I did the in-country check ride in the, in the UH-1. Then I did a AO checkout, area of operations checkout, which essentially would just flying around to the various airfields uh, to, to see where they were and, and how they were situated. And then I was assigned uh, to the clowns to do my operational flying. Um, the most the most memorable um, of, of of that particular period 
Um, Wayne McAdoo uh, was the platoon commander, and he was headed back to Hawaii to spend um, an R&R with his wife. And so he said, uh, Mills, um, you're the you're the senior ranking guy in the in the in the clowns while I'm gone. So you're the acting platoon leader. But you don't know poop about flying in Vietnam, so I'm going to give you the best warrant officer I've got. And that was uh, warrant officer uh, one. Uh, we had very few W-2s, no W-3s or 4s. But he said, I'm going to give you Bob Holmes. He's going to be the pilot. You can be the aircraft commander and uh, uh, don't do anything stupid for seven days because he was going to, he was going to Hawaii. Um, the third day that we flew together, uh, we had a mission. Uh, it was a scramble mission to get the ARPS into a position to rescue a LERP team that was in serious, serious trouble. They had run into a much larger force. Um, there had been a running gun battle. Several of those guys were, were badly hurt. That mission is, is portrayed in a book um, by Bill Goshen, uh, G-O-S-H-E-N, who, who wrote a, a, a LERP book about the 1st Infantry Division. Hmm. Um, but as we planned for that mission, the requirement was to prep the LZ with artillery. Well, I hadn't fired artillery since Fort Knox. And as, as you well know, the training environment is not anywhere near the tactical environment. So very quickly, while Bob was getting the the uh, the flight ready uh, to, to launch the ARPS, I was going through my little uh, uh, Fort Knox issued artillery uh, cards that, that you got when you were in school <laughs> on how to adjust freaking artillery. I'd never done it in real life. And our, our requirement was to fly from Fuloy. Uh, to an initial point and then turn for a long run into a, a fairly uh, narrow, long uh, LZ. And um, I'm, I'm talking to division artillery and I'm ginning up a, a, an artillery request. And it was uh, 105s and 155s fired from two different directions. The last round in the LZ was to be a, a Willie Pete, white phosphorus. And so as we hit the initial point up in front of us, about two or three kilometers, um, you see all this artillery erupting in the, in the landing zone. And Bob Holmes is sitting in the right seat. I'm in the left seat with my map and talking on the radio. And it's just boom, 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 boom with artillery. And he keeps uh, looking at me and we keep getting closer and closer. And he's looking at me like, you need to shut this stuff off. And then about 400 yards before we hit the, uh, the LZ, a huge white phosphorus erupts mm -hmm. in the landing zone. And I went, wow, this works exactly like they said it would work. And we dropped the ARPS in and, and took off. And on the way back to our holding point, Bob said, that was, that was great. Uh, how many times have you done that? And I looked at him and I said, once, just now. Uh, so that was my introduction into into commanding uh, UH-1s and prepping LZs, uh, and I commend the, the artillery department of the Armor School for teaching me how to do that. Yeah, wow, that's a that's a good beginner's luck to have right there. Um, okay, so 
I mean, so you were a Huey guy for, so when did you get to move over to the scout platoon? In about March of 1969, um, there was a vacancy. The, the, uh, uh, scout section leader, um, a Lieutenant named Cherry, uh, rotated back to the States and, uh, and I was given the opportunity to go over and fly scouts. The scout transition was, was probably, uh, a lot less um, uh, difficult or, or systematic than, than a transition like that would be today. Um, I had to do 10 hours of in-country qualification in the 086, and we did it in the unit. And one of our scout pilots, Bill Hayes, uh, was a scout uh, SIP. And uh, basically, I flew with Bill for 10 hours, and that, that transition was about three or four hours of how to do an auto rotation in an OH-6. Uh, they're, they're totally different from other helicopters in that if you don't level the skids at touchdown, you will chop off the tail boom. You, you can't land on the heels uh, of the skids like you would a Huey or, or a 58. You have to physically push the stick forward and, and land with the, uh, uh, the skids level. And, and that's basically it. Low-level autos, uh, low-level high-speed, 50-foot, uh, 100 knots, chop the throttle, pop up to uh, 150, 200 feet, and then auto-rotate from there. Um, high-speed, uh, high-level auto-rotations. And after about four or five hours of that, Bill got out and said, okay, fly around the pattern for a while. And so I flew around the pattern at Fuloy for three or four hours. And then I went out and took a check ride with the same, same SIP. Um, and that was my introduction to, to, uh, to the 086. It was a single pilot aircraft. Our crew uh, configuration in those days was one pilot and one gunner. And so they assigned me as the section leader under John Herkert, who was the platoon commander, uh, he was Dark Horse 1-6, I was Dark Horse 1-7, and uh, I began to fly missions. And uh, the, the procedure of the day was to put a brand new scout pilot with a very experienced scout gunner uh, who would keep you out of trouble. Uh, the gunner rode in the back seat. He had no access to the controls. Um, I initially flew with a, with a wonderful... Uh, uh, scout observer gunner named uh, Joe Crockett, Santa Barbara, California. Um, Joe was an absolute professional. Uh, he kept me from doing stupid things, uh, go faster when I should not have gotten slower. Um, <laughs> he spent all day. He was a surf guy from, as I said, Santa Barbara. And if he wasn't flying, he was out on the ramp with his shirt off uh, waxing his aircraft. He waxed it with Johnson floor polish and it, it, it shined. <laughs> and he took great umbrage. If, if I walked around on a pre-flight, he would get really hacked if I would touch anything. And you know, aviators, you mm. want to grab a push-pull tube and, and, and pull on it. And, yeah. and he didn't like that. So I learned <laughs> pretty quickly to just go and look and finally, I got to the point where I said, Joe, are we ready? And he'd say, ready, LT. And I wouldn't even check. Um, that's that's the, the, the level of professionalism we had with these, these scouts. They maintained the aircraft, 
and they flew in it. There, there, there were no other people yeah. to maintain that airplane except the, and, and trust me, they didn't want me maintaining the airplane I was flying. I didn't know anything about aircraft maintenance. <laughs> I, I have always thought my job was to break them, not to fix them. Yeah. Well, it's certainly easier to, to build that level of trust with the crew chief because he's got to go with you. So you know that he's got a vested interest in making sure that thing's working good. And, and when you say they got to go with you, that worked two ways. If the if the uh, yeah. pilot went down, the crew chief went with him. Um, yeah. Rarely did we not lose both at once when we lost a, an air crew. Um, I can think of two occasions. We lost a, a crew chief, but we're able to save a pilot. We lost a pilot. We're able to save a crew chief. Every other one, we lost the whole crew. Hmm. Um, so I, my introduction to flying scouts, uh, was, was with a guy named Bill Jones. Uh, initially we flew, um, two guys in the front with an observer in the back and Bill taught me how to scout. Um, our, our introduction to scouting actually for me was, was a huge operation called Atlas Wedge, which was in March of uh, 1969 and the 11th ACR, the 25th division, first cavalry and the quarter cav attacked the uh, NVA entrenched positions within the Michelin rubber plantation. Um, mm. And I was, uh, I had the great honor to be the first scout into the rubber, as we say, into the plantation at low level um, at first light in March of 1969 with Bill Jones sitting next to me. And I would look down and see North Vietnamese regulars with camouflage parachute capes on their backs, running through the trees like ants. And I'd never seen that, but I'd never seen an enemy soldier before. And Bill kept saying, keep your speed up, keep your speed up, keep your speed up. And behind me, Joe Crockett was working out with his M60, um, and that was my introduction to combat in the OH-6. And, and the key to survival, as preached by my mentors, was speed and, and um, uncertainty. Don't make the same run on the same azimuth twice. Constantly move, constantly jink. Uh, make yourself uh, a difficult target. Our, our primary foe was the AK-47. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody had an AK-47. We had uh, we would occasionally run into SGM crew serve machine guns. Uh, the real nemesis of the Cobra and the Huey was the 51 uh, Cal. But the Scouts uh, honestly were not. Uh, I was hit by a 51 once in 1969, and I was in an open area, going slow, and he was in a tree line right beside me. But our primary weapon of interest was the AK-47, and our primary engagement distance was 25 to 35 meters. So mm. when a guy opens up on you at 35 meters with a 30-round AK, you're, you're going to take some hits. And uh, to the credit of the wonderful people at Hughes Tool Company, um, the, the OH-6 was designed to take hits. It was designed to crash. Uh, mm. It would roll itself up in a ball. It would shed the... Uh, the gear and the tail boom and the rotor system, and it would roll up around this truss A-frame 
that was built inside it. And usually the crew would come popping out. But the, the, the success of a scout pilot was based on his ability to do just that. You had to learn to scout. And I found that the guys that were successful, generally speaking, were guys that had grown up in the woods, guys that had grown up hunting, guys that were comfortable seeing things that uh, perhaps were out of the norm, a straight line in an environment of a jungle, a glint uh, where there should be none, uh, smell, odor. We, we could actually smell the enemy. We were that close. Um, and I think my background in, in the hills of Arkansas as a hunter and, and an outdoorsman is, is what gave me the success that I had. And, and frankly, uh, 2010 eyesight, um, hmm. which I still have, uh, thanks to LASIK, but, uh, 2010 <laughs> eyesight was, was, was what set scout pilots apart. If you couldn't see what was down there, um, very often you, uh, you took the brunt of the damage. Yeah. I remember in your book, uh, at least I, I think I remember, uh, you guys talking about even, you know, finding footprints and, you know, and following boot tracks and stuff and, in, in the mud and, and, and just really observing, like you said, the lay of the land and, and the passage of somebody through that area. The, the term combat scout is exactly that. We, uh, um, we followed footprints. We would report uh, foot traffic, what direction it was going, how fresh it was, how recent, uh, camouflage on bunkers, uh, how recent that was. It would brown, turn from dark uh, uh, green to brown over a period of, of hours and days. Um, when you're tooling down uh, across the jungle at six to eight feet and you look down and you see a cigarette button, it's still smoking. You know, the, the, uh, the guy's close. Um, so we, we were right in the middle of it. And, and, uh, I, I will say that the war for scout pilots was very, very personal. That's why our, um, casualty rate was, was 80%. Yeah, a lot of that um, that technique has certainly been lost. Um, you know, as a fifty eight pilot, we we weren't allowed to do a lot of the things that you're talking about. Um, deployed, uh, you know, you, you'd always have these established hard decks. You know, they didn't want you to go below five hundred feet. You know, we'd do it anyway, um, but they'd establish these sort of rules. And you know, I remember one hilltop in particular in Afghanistan where we knew the enemy was using it. Uh, as an observation post for this major uh, uh, route, um, because it's just like you're talking about, you know, we found this little kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, kind of a little dugout in the rocks and we'd get real close to it and there'd be, you know, water bottles. I was like, well, who's up here? You know, this is clearly somebody's using this and there's really no reason to be up here unless you're probably doing something nefarious. So that, but, but unfortunately those, that skill is atrophied because, uh, because of the rules of engagement and, and the rules of flight. But, you know, I mean, you guys were sort of, I don't want to say making it up as you go along, but you were, you were creating this, you know, this way of doing things back then. And, and it doesn't, I don't want to say there were no rules, but there were certainly less rules <laughs> and you guys were able to, to be creative. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, when you say rules, uh, we did have a thing that we called dark horse rules. The, hmm. the AOs that we operated in had no friendlies, none. 
remember that in the late mm. 60s, the civilian population had been pulled out of the remote hamlets and pulled back into Arvin, Arvin being Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Um, Arvin controlled outposts. So where we went, there were no friendlies. Uh, you would find enemy troops, you mm. would find friendly troops, and we knew where the friendlies were. But on occasion, we, we would run into guys that were totally no threat. Uh, the, the ones that I remember the most were the woodcutters in, in the area of Shantan along Highway 13. They made their living with charcoal. And so you'd, you'd be tooling along in the middle of nowhere, and, and here's a guy with a six-year-old kid and a woman and an axe. Uh, he's obviously a woodcutter. So Dark Horse Rules was no women, no children, no friendlies. And again, we're looking at them. We're eyeball to eyeball, 25, 30 meters from them. I can tell an NVA or a, or a main force VC from a civilian, largely by the way they reacted to you. Um, I was out training. Uh, it, it, the F effort is in the book, but... I was out training a new scout pilot one day in an area that was supposed to be relatively pacified. And as I was teaching him how to follow footprints, there were a group of farmers off to my right, uh, to the east of me, that were planting rice shoots in a rice paddy. It was oh, probably six, eight inches deep with, with water. And they were all moving in unison in the same direction. And they were mostly women and they were wearing the conical hats and all that. And as as uh, my as uh, Callaway, my uh, student pilot, was was learning to fly low level, I happened to look over at the group, and there was one guy right in the middle who didn't have a hat on. He was a military age male, and he wasn't planting rice shoots in the same direction everybody else was. He was kind of cattywampus, and he was watching me. And every time I'd turn, he would turn and look at mm. me. So I knew right then I had an enemy combatant and we tried to get people from the Arvin unit fairly close to us to come over, but we couldn't establish contact. So I told the Cobra, I said, I'm just going to land and capture him. And that's the first time I ever landed in combat. And so we did. And, and I got out and pointed an M16 at him and told him to come my way. He did that. He walked over to the side of the airplane. Um, he started to get in the back. And when I handed my M16 up to Callaway, uh, this guy bolted, ran under the tail boom, almost took his head off on the tail rotor and headed out in the middle of the, of the rice paddy. I tried to catch him, but you know, I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a chicken plate, which weighed about 30 pounds and uh, carrying all my gear, I, I sank into the mud. So I motioned at Callaway to go get him. And the, uh, the warrant officer uh, hit this guy a couple of times with a, with a hovering uh, skid. And then finally, when the guy fell down, Callaway landed on him with the skid on his legs. And of course he was in the mud. It didn't hurt him. But I, walked, I was able to get back up to where the aircraft was and I grabbed him by the stack and swivel and I punched him just as hard as I could punch and his eyes rolled back in his head and I threw him in the back end and I got in the back end. And, uh, uh that's when we realized that enemy soldiers in the tree line about 150 yards away were shooting at us. 
and we oh, we wow. flew we flew down the road. Here's a brand new guy I'd never flown the airplane by himself. He's flying it. Uh, I'm trying to get <laughs> in contact with the Arvin unit via the radio uh, headset that's in the back of the OH-6. And we never could. So we just flew down the road to the Arvin base and landed. And they, uh, they came and got the guy and said, he's a North Vietnamese major and he's a tax collector. So that was my first, uh, my first experience in, in going on the ground. I, I didn't do it a lot, but I did on a couple of occasions. Um, it was not something that we, we uh, set out to do, but if, if you see a dead North Vietnamese officer in the middle of a firefight, a big one, and he's got a map case on him, that's kind of important. Uh, so I landed yeah. uh, and picked that up one day, but we, we did make it up as we went along. There were not uh, organizational rules. Um, it was a new concept. Helicopters were a new concept. Air mobility was a new concept. Um, at that point in time, only one division in the Army, the 1st uh, Cav Division Air Mobile, was an Air Mobile Division. And then, of course, the 101st converted after that. But we did learn as we went along, uh, but the attributes of a successful scout in those days were identical to the cavalry scouts of the frontier. No difference. Yeah. That's, I mean, just hearing that story, I mean, I could just imagine the fallout in the modern day that would be if, if I landed a, an OH-58 and got out and tried to capture somebody or, or grab a, a map or something. So it's just, it's an incredible story. Um, when you guys were flying those missions, was it, uh, was it two OH-6s up together or just the one and, and you had Cobras? Like, how did that work? In, in 69, the uh, mission configuration was called a pink team, a white element, the scout with a red element, the gun. Largely based on the uh, the terrain in three corps, we worked uh, out of Fuloy Army Airfield, uh, north east of of Saigon, um, about thirty miles, and the the terrain was very very thick tropical jungle. Um, it really wasn't suited to a two person operation, so it was one Cobra and one uh, scout and the, the first calf called them pink teams. We called them hunter killer teams. Uh, when I would return to Vietnam to dark horse for a second tour in 1972, uh, we flew in the Delta in fourth Corps, and that was ideally suited and really needed a wingman low. And we flew with two scouts. So, the hunter killer team of 1969 became what was called a cav pack in 1972. And that was two Cobras, a Huey with an air mission commander and a local force coordinator. We always had to land uh, toward the end of the war in the Delta and pick up a Vietnamese uh, captain, major colonel, and they would do all the artillery clearance because all the American units were gone in 72. Um, mm. but two scouts in the Delta was absolutely uh, necessary, uh, uh, especially taking fire from up from a Nipah palm line or a long linear line of trees. As you broke away, they had a long time to engage you. And if you had a wingman with a minigun, 
as you broke away, you put mm. your tail on the enemy and your, your wingman put his minigun on the source of the fire. Okay. Um, so it evolved too over, over that period of time. Hmm. And then you, you still had the Cobras and they were what up high, uh, just diving in. Right? Still, still had Cobras. Yeah. The, the, um, the Cobra had two cues. I, I flew Cobras with third of the fifth calf in 1971 with the one Oh first. And as an old scout pilot, I preferred to fly what was called a low gun. I flew at 600 feet with a Cobra that had the M35 system, a 20 millimeter Gatling gun on the wing. And if I saw my scout's tail pop up as he was accelerating out of an area, I was already rolling. He didn't have to say anything. And the next thing I would expect to see would be a flash. And that would be the ignition of the red smoke grenade that the crew chief had just put out. And by the time the smoke started coming up, I was already hitting it with 20 millimeter or flechettes. Um, a guy who has flown scouts makes an excellent gun pilot, but I also had excellent gun pilots that covered me that, that were not scout pilots. It's, it's experience. Sure. Um, usually it's the tenor of the voice. When you hear a scout pilot's voice go up about three octaves, <laughs> he's getting shot at. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if you see his tail fly straight up to, to accelerate, you know, something's happening. Yeah. It's all those visual cues. And you said the crew chief's throwing out a smoke. Is that, that was a predetermined signal that uh, the enemy is vicinity, the smoke or. Red smoke. Red smoke was hit it. Um, the, the crew chief in the back carried an M60 free gun. Uh, it was not on a mountain. Uh, it was on a bungee cord. And they uh, generally had a red smoke grenade hanging from the carry handle, if you're familiar with it, on an M60 machine gun. And all they'd have to do while firing is simply pull the grenade and it falls out and goes red. Um and, and red was only used to mark enemy targets, uh, nothing okay. else. I see. So how many tours did you end up doing in Vietnam? Three. One, okay. one tour with the 1st Infantry Division, um, Quarter Cav, uh, one tour with 3rd of the 5th Cav, uh, 101st Airborne Division, working out of Quan Loy on the DMZ up north in I-Corps. Um, and then when, when uh, that unit stood down in February of 72, because I was a second tour aviator, I was offered the opportunity to go home. And, and uh, I didn't want to go home. Uh, I was, I was uh, single. I was doing what I'd been trained to do, and I really didn't want to leave after a tour of flying Cobras. And so I told my troop commander, I said, boss, I don't really want to go home. And he said, well, uh, and this is probably a departure from today's army as well. He said, uh, go find yourself a job. That was my orders <laughs> February of 72. And so I, I called. Dark Horse had stayed in country. When, when the 1st Division came home in 1970, March of 70, the Air Cav Troop stayed there because it was such a critical asset in the theater. And they simply rebadged uh, D Troop 14 Cav Air to C Troop 16th Cav Air, which was an independent air cav troop. Maintained the mm -hmm. call sign Dark Horse, maintained the uh, the aircraft markings, the, everything, 
and they moved from Fuloy to Sok Trang in four core. And then after a, a brief uh, assignment there, they moved to Kanto on the Mekong River. Um, and my buddy Rod Willis, who had flown with me in 69, had come back to Vietnam the same time uh, I did the second tour, and he was in Dark Horse again. Uh, he had been my wingman, my roommate, my, uh, my dear friend in 69, and he was back in and was there in, in 72. And so I called him from, from I-Corps, from up on the DMZ, and I said, hey, I need a job. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, you're in luck. The, uh, the uh, scout platoon leader got shot two days ago. And um, if you want to come down here, come down here, I'll, I'll fix it. So I literally grabbed my B4 bag and my car 15, and I went over to the airfield and flew from i to Saigon in a C-130, went over to Hotel Alpha, <coughs> which was the helicopter heliport there in Saigon, and just waited until there was an airplane coming in that I could uh, scab a ride off of going down to Kanto. <laughs> and while I was sitting there on my bag uh, drinking a Coca-Cola, I hear an 086. I look up. It's a dark horse loach with the low level hell uh, insignia on it. And it's coming in for landing. And it was uh, it was warrant officer Rusty Rice, who was our maintenance officer. And he'd flown into Saigon for a parts pickup. And I asked him, I said, hey, can I catch a ride down Canto with you? And he said, sure, uh, Captain, jump in. And we're about halfway to Canto. He says, what are you going to do at the uh, at, uh, at Canto? What unit are you assigned to? I said, well, I'm, I'm assigned to Dark Horse. He goes, oh, I'm the maintenance test pilot for Dark Horse. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be your platoon leader. <laughs> and that's, that's how I met my maintenance officer. Um, uh, at that point in time, he That's says, would you cool. like to fly? And I said, yeah. And I hadn't flown an 086 for <laughs> a couple of years. Uh, and that's how I got back to Dark Horse for a second tour. And and mm-hmm. uh, again, roomed with Rod Willis and flew with Rod Willis routinely and uh, and did my second tour uh, with, uh, with Dark Horse, leaving there in, in September of 1972. The war ended in January. So you mentioned uh, when the aircraft was coming in and you saw it, it had a, a low level hell emblem. What d- describe? Where did that? How did that come about? Where did that? What did it look like? The uh, the genesis of the low level hell patch is kind of interesting, and it, it's very special to me. Um, the name Outcast has been there from the very beginning. the The first Outcast patch, an original of which I have never seen was in very small numbers and it had an Indian head um, kind of looking down and it said outcast on it. I've never seen a real one. I've seen copies that were obviously fake, hmm. but by the time I got to dark horse, the outcast patch was a, was a blue rectangle with a white skull and, and the name outcasts across the top. That was it. And hmm. I took command of the outcasts in, in uh, March of, of uh, 69. One of my warrant officers came to me in July of 69, and he had a rendering of, of a proposed patch. He wanted to change our fairly 
common outcast patch to one that was totally different. It was a red oval with with a black skull and two crossed sabers behind it. And it it said uh, outcasts and uh, arrow scouts. And then underneath it was, was a banner that said low level hell. The guy that did that was Joe Henry Vad. Joe was a W1 a former Marine uh, from Brooklyn, New York, a, a, a less city-fied guy you will never in your life meet. But he had been a Marine, <laughs> and he was a fabulous uh, scout pilot. Uh, Joe was killed along with Jim Downing in uh, November of 1969. And when I wrote the book, uh, Low Level Hell, uh, I, I wanted – I thought about a lot of titles. Dark Horse 1-6 was a title. There were all kinds of titles we looked at, but I wanted low-level hell because of the sacrifice made by all the guys in my unit in 69. And I was sitting at home about a year after low-level hell was published in 1992, and my phone rang. And this female voice says, you don't know me, but my name is Lisa Vatt. And I said, I know exactly who you mm. are. You are Joe Vad's infant daughter. And she said, yes. Mm. Her cousin had been going through the Atlanta airport and seen low-level hell on the book rack and bought it. And he opened it up to the memorial page and he saw Warrant Officer Joseph uh, Vad. And uh, Lisa was a child. Uh, her Her mother was from Nova Scotia. Uh, they left New York after Joe's death. She moved to Nova Scotia, grew up, became a flight attendant for Air Nova. And in 1992, when that book came out, that's the first she knew about how her father lived and died as a scout pilot with Dark Horse. And we've been dear friends ever since. Uh, she flew down here to Missouri uh, shortly thereafter and we went up together to meet the family of uh, Jim Downing, who was Joe's crew chief uh, from Green City, Missouri, just north of me a couple hours. And we got to spend a, a, a wonderful day with Kenny and Bernice Downing, the parents of, of Jim Downing. Um, Jim Downing was my crew chief in the chapter of the book called The Crater, where we had a whole bunch of ARPs uh, stuck in a crater surrounded by an enemy ambush. A lot of guys got hurt, but Downing did an outstanding job that day and won the Silver Star as a result of it. Um, his father never knew the events of, of his son's winning of the Silver Star. So all of those things put together is why Low Level Hell became Low Level Hell. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm working on, uh, I'm plodding along on a sequel uh, that will cover really? the second and third tour at the same time I'm working on a documentary um, as a result of a trip I took back to Vietnam um, a couple of years ago to meet a group of enemy soldiers that I fought against in uh, January 1972. Um, It's the only time that we're aware of where an American soldier who fought against a specific group of enemy soldiers sat down at a table with them 
and discussed it. And I spent three weeks with those guys. Uh, we, we went to Hanoi. Uh, we came, we went to Ho Chi Minh's uh, headquarters during 1945. You know, most people don't realize the American forces, the OSS, jumped into French Indochina to support Ho Chi Minh as he fought the Japanese. And um, mm. as the Japanese capitulated, American OSS operatives rode with Ho Chi Minh by horseback into Hanoi, where he declared uh, a national uh, uh, a national day of unification for all of Vietnam. And he was a he was deathly afflicted with malaria. And it was the uh, sulfa drugs provided by that OSS medic that saved Ho Chi Minh's life. And had it turned out differently, the Vietnam War may not have been fought. But, you know, had we supported the Vietnamese at the end of the war, uh, rather than assist in the return of the French to French Indochina, uh, we probably would have never fought that war. But that's that's a lot of uh, a lot of conjecture, but yeah. I walked into this uh, this hotel in in uh, Hanoi into the into the bar with my wife and and some folks from Hollywood, uh, John Bruno, uh, an Academy Award winning uh, director, and I met these guys, seventeen guys who, on the thirty first of December. Uh, 1971, they shot down Charlie Horse um, 2-6, uh, which started a huge, huge fight that lasted for hours. Um, moments after that, uh, Charlie Horse Scout attempted to rescue the wounded gunner on Charlie Horse 2-6 and was also shot up very, very badly, killing um, Lee Denmark, who was the observer on that aircraft. And uh, the, the fight that ensued was, was what they call a, a remembered fight. It was a big one. We lost a Huey and a Scout that day, finally getting the, the survivors out uh, with a Jolly Green Giant from the Air Force uh, 37th Rescue Squadron. And then later on the 20th of January, Charlie Horse 2-5 was shot down with four KIA and, uh, and, and everybody else se severely wounded. And then on 30 January, uh, I went down um, attacking a 14.5 uh, anti-aircraft gun, and I had a hang fire in my right inboard pod of a Cobra, and uh, the rocket ignited but didn't leave the pod. And, of course, that rocket mm. motor ignited all the other rocket motors in a seven-shot pod, and it exploded, went through my tail rotor, knocked out the 42, the 60, and the 90-degree gearboxes, and I lost the tail of the aircraft in, a, in about an 80-degree dive. Um, survived wow. totally by chance. Um, I could not see... The outside, because of, I was below the mountaintops uh, up in i -Corp. and my wingman was Lou Brewer, uh, All-American from Texas Tech. And uh, I, I remember Lou saying, I was trying to hold the thing level. I mean, the, the, the CG shift was significant. I lost everything after the sure. exhaust of the airplane. <laughs> and 
Lou Brewer, I remember on the radio, I, I said to myself, this is it. I'm done for. And I heard Lou in my headset going, pull it, damn it, pull it. And I pulled pitch everything I had and the um, rotation stopped. And I settled into the treetops and then the aircraft rolled on its right side. And I went through uh, about 200 feet of triple canopy jungle um, coming to a rest on the right side. And we were down for several hours until the, uh, the Air Force had to come and get me. Um, huh. the, uh, that was probably the most traumatic flight in my career. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, that was a bad one. Uh, and I was on the side of a mountain for, for several hours with a broken leg. My uh, John Bryant, my front seater, uh, had a broken neck and a broken back. And three infantry guys from our unit, they were gunners, uh, former members of the 75th Ranger of the 101st Airborne Division that had been flying gunner on our helicopters, grabbed whatever gear they had, jumped on a Huey, came out to where we were, rappelled in, uh, and one medic and two riflemen, and protected me and John until that... uh, Air Force package got out there with A1 Sky Raiders and two Jolly Greens and and all of that. So uh, John Bryant and I became save uh, 700 and 701 for the Air Rescue Service in Vietnam. So uh, some of my favorite people are para jumpers for the Air Force. Um, I was able to meet Randy Picklesheimer years later, who was my paramedic, my para jumper, PJ. Who, uh, who came down to get me, and I was able to meet him at a, a PJ reunion down in Helen, Georgia, and uh, present him with a token of my esteem. But um, that's probably the worst thing that ever happened to me in an aircraft. Uh, most of our shoot-downs were uh, aircraft being uh, incapable of continuing flight. Um, only two of mine were catastrophic. I mean, everything rolling up in, in a ball and and uh, tearing a lot of stuff up, but that Cobra was was the worst. And I actually went back to the site of that Cobra. Um, it's It was ultimately destroyed by the Air Force, but I climbed that mountain with a Vietnamese guide a couple of years ago, and, and that artifact wow. hangs on the wall of my garage today. Um, 15802 was the tail number, and I went back to get it. Um, but I got to tell you, the interesting thing about these Vietnamese soldiers, they were, they were from an anti-aircraft company, uh, the, the 7th Company, 10th Battalion, 241st NVA Anti-Aircraft Regiment. And the first question, the only question they wanted to hear from me on the night we met in Hanoi, um, they were the guys that shot down all three of our aircraft. And, and, uh, they wanted to know how old I was. <clears throat> and I said, well, I'm, uh, when I came to Vietnam, I was, I was in that tour, I was 24. And they were all about 18. And they immediately began to call me uncle because the position of uncle is a revered status in the Vietnamese culture. Uh, there was no animosity. We had killed about 40 of their guys during that 30-day or so uh, series of engagements. Uh, They had killed 
four of ours. Uh, no animosity, no hatred, um, no negative words or deeds. Uh, they treated my wife and myself uh, admirably. And we had a great time. The, the only thing negative about those guys is they would all come up one at a time to have me do a toast with, uh, with rice wine with them. And so each of them would do one <laughs> toast and I'd do 17. And, and I got to yeah. tell you, I knew what they were doing, but I, in a manner of respect, I just, I still had to do it. And sure. then my wife had to guide me back to the room because uh, they did that <laughs> three or four times. That night. So I had like 37 shots of rice wine before the night. So you, you start time traveling and next thing you know, well, it's two days later. So. The interesting thing is we, we would ultimately, a week or two later, we got on a bus and went from Hanoi um, to Way uh, and stayed in a hotel at Way, which was there during the Vietnam War. And then we drove out to Quezon, which was the area where all of these uh, shoot downs occurred. Uh, and we actually walked the ground with these guys and they showed me where their um, bunkers were. And, and we knew where Charlie Horse, I had all the grid coordinates, you know, where all these birds had gone down. And I remembered it from flying over it. Um, but they would say, you know, we were over here and this is our where our bunker was. And you guys came from here. And once the first aircraft went down, they didn't want to fight anymore because all of a sudden, now I've got Sky Raiders. I've got 10 Cobras in the air. I've got uh, Vietnamese Sky Raiders, Air Force Sky Raiders. I've got a, uh, F-5s, um, A-7s, uh, F-4s, all kinds of hurt being brought on these guys to protect this crew. Uh, and they didn't want to fight anymore. They just wanted us to go away. Um but it, it certainly was a unique opportunity for me. And we recorded somewhere in the, in, in the hundreds of hours of uh, comments from these guys. And those, uh, those recordings are being translated as we speak in, in Hollywood. Um, we have some support for a documentary, probably going to be called Reconciliation or something like that. Um, and it's being supported by a very uh, well-known uh, production company in Hollywood that I'm not at liberty to disclose at this point in time. But um, oh, that's incredible. Hopefully, we'll have a documentary within within the next year or so. Wow! I had a heck of a time. It was it was a hoot. That's uh that's incredible. Um, yeah. So we've got a potentially a second book coming. A documentary. I mean, what else are you working on? <laughs> well, my next uh, my next effort will be retirement. I think. Um, my my wife uh, is a retired uh, detective of the Kansas City Police Department. She retired a couple of years ago. Um, she stays up all night and, and gets up late, does what she wants to do, and it, it looks pretty appealing to me, but. I'm still working, and as long as I'm still working, uh, I, I don't get to do that. We have a place in Naples, Florida that we bought a couple of years ago, and uh, my wife is from Miami. And so when a cold wind blows in Kansas City, she's gone. She's in Naples, and I'm here for two or three weeks. I'm still working, but 
Um, I, I haven't decided yet on when I when I want to retire. Uh, I don't fly actively anymore. Um, I've, I've maintained my medical and my uh, uh, my uh, flight physical and my my uh, aviation status. So hmm. I haven't given up on that yet. But I would only fly now for recreation. Well, as a as a Florida boy, I have to uh, agree with your wife that a uh, cold wind is is not a preferred. So, so good choices on her where, end. Where was your home? Oh, I'm from Tampa. Yep, Tampa, Florida. So, I, I had uh, friends that lived in Naples too, so I know that area. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's she's from Hialeah, and her okay. folks were in Boca Raton. And when they passed, uh, we bought a place in Naples, and it's a uh, it, it's fun, but it's, uh, I need three seasons and I need snow yeah. and she doesn't need any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't really go back. It's, it's too hot, but, uh, but at the same time I hate being cold. So I, I just need to find a place that's perfect all the time. Well, it's not Missouri. I can, I can help you with your search. It's not here. <laughs> well, I'll cross that one off we're, the list. <laughs> we are, we are, to have snow on Tuesday oh, and it was uh, 74 degrees two days ago. So uh, th- this place is unpredictable. No, I can't handle that. That doesn't work. Um, well, I want to say, uh, you know, gosh, I mean, I feel like we could sit here for hours and, uh, and there's so many stories and so many things that I'd love to hear from you, but I think we'll wrap it up here. And I guess what I would like to ask is, you know, to, to have you back on again in the, in the near future and, and kind of continue some more discussion and, and learn about your experiences. Um, sure, and, sure. And, and I, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, that would be fantastic. The, um, uh, go ahead. Uh, what I would, what I would like to say to your, to your listeners is that while my favorite book on the Vietnam air war is low level hell for obvious reasons, <laughs> There are some excellent books out there um, on the Vietnam experience. Uh, Cobra Pilot by by Bob Hartley. Bob was one of our uh, Dark Horse Cobra Pilots in 72. Is excellent. North Flag by John Robb is an excellent book on, on Huey's. John and I commanded tank companies in the same battalion, hmm. uh, 64th Armor, uh, 3rd Division in Vietnam. I'm sorry, in, uh, in Germany. Um, there are a number of excellent books on uh, the Air War, the Lerps, the Rangers. Uh, uh, there's a couple of pretty decent novels. Uh, Matterhorn is, is pretty darn good. Uh, the 13th Valley by John Del Vecchio is excellent. Uh, there are plenty of good books on Vietnam, and, and I would encourage you to consider your own. Uh, we all have our own stories, our own experiences, and, and uh most of the guys that I ran with that wrote books uh, did it after I did. And, and their essential result was, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. And, and I encourage you to consider it yourself. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, the whole reason for this podcast is is kind of the same concept of just capturing these these stories and experiences and memories. And, uh, you know, your book was a, a huge uh, influence on that, as obviously you can tell by the title you know, when I started, uh, really this all came from a community that I had started of, of people that were interested in the, the history of, of combat helicopter aviation. And, 
and I needed to come up with a name for it. And I tell you, the first thing that came to my mind was your book, um, because it was such a, a formative part of my own growth as a, as a scout pilot. And, uh, and the name stuck there. And, and then when we started the podcast, the same kind of idea, just like what, what, what represents not only the, the regime, you know, the flight regime of where these aircraft are, are typically operating, but, but what just kind of harkens back to, to the memories of, of what you and others have gone through and, and just these incredible stories. So, um, I, I know you collect patches, um, and I've got a patch for you. So we'll, we're going to get that out to you here real soon. And, um, yeah, I definitely want to have you back on a show sometime in the future and, and, and definitely keep up with you as, as this documentary, which sounds incredible. And, uh, in any future books that you, that you are working on, hopefully, uh, we can get those finished soon and we can take a look at them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, coming from a fellow scout pilot, I, I truly appreciate that. I have, uh, I maintained contact, uh, maintained contact throughout the, um, the desert war, um, with uh, a young man who became Dark Horse One Six for the last time. He was the last hmm. um, Aero Scout platoon leader of the Fourth Cavalry, Dale Bond. And hmm. uh, I'm sorry that you never had the opportunity to fly the OH Six. You flew what those of us who did called the OH Five Point Eight, <laughs> not quite an OH Six. Uh, I've never flown a D model, but I've flown a lot of A models. Yeah. And I will tell you that that one of the great memories for me is that I was asked by the Army to go to Fort Polk when they retired the OH-58D. And I actually flew the last flight uh, of the OH-58D of the 10th Mountain at Fort Polk. Oh, really? And um, enjoyed it. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, it's a very different experience. I mean, even just from a an old fifty eight to a to a Delta, there's a lot lot going on. But you know, I'll tell you, with all that technology that we had on board, we we still spent a lot of time focused on sort of those fundamentals that that you've talked about here and and the things that that you and yours did in years before. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's the end of an era. I think you know now now that we don't have those small platforms anymore doing that stuff. And you know I've I've flown Apaches and the, I've flown Apaches the way I'd fly 58s. It never really works out quite as well. Um, so we've definitely lost some some things there. It's unfortunate, but I guess that's just progress. It, well, it's progress, but you can't make history with a drone. Right. Uh, and I think that's probably my last my last word on the subject. <laughs> it's been a no, pleasure. I'm happy to come back. Uh, that sounds great. Yeah, we would definitely love to have you. Thank you so much. Well, I can't thank Colonel Mills enough for taking time out of his busy day and, and talking to me on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, it was a, a real treat to speak with him and, and uh, of course, the conversations we had before and after and, and talking to him since then. is uh, a big uh, supporter of what we're trying to do here, and uh, we look forward to, to talking to him again soon. And he's got some other projects going on there, so hopefully we can uh, kind of give, some, give you guys a peek into that. I also want to say thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, just the, the outpouring of support is overwhelming, and, uh, of course, for everyone who leaves a comment or leaves a rating... Uh, wherever they listen to this podcast, it's greatly appreciated as well. I love going and reading the comments when they pop up, and uh, yeah, it's funny and uh, it's great. I, I thank you very much. It's very supportive. 
Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Just a reminder that the comments made by the guest and host do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. We'll talk to you guys again in two weeks and take care of yourselves. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.